You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in a post-Thanksgiving world. And I call it a post-Thanksgiving world because it's kind of like when you're on the other side of this in the political world, this is the most miserable month of the year. The home stretch when conservatives get screwed. We're going to go through all the legislative shenanigans that are going to take place and what conservatives should watch out for. But first, I hope you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Today's Monday afternoon, by the way, November 27th. Special shout out to my youngest son, Zach. Happy birthday. Turned three today. When he was born that year, it was actually Thanksgiving itself. The the greatest blessing. And uh, I hope you all really took time to unplug, whether it's politically, whether it's just your your general job, because I found that the worst elements of regular life are better than this just cyber online constant political world that I'm in. Or, you know, even professionally, even if you enjoy what you do, <laughs> which increasingly I don't, really hard to come back. But I, I, I engaged in the worst stuff over Thanksgiving, along with, you know, great experiences. But I actually took off wallpaper that was stuck to an untreated wall, and not just on the wall, but on the ceiling, <laughs> where you don't have gravity working for you. Uh, that was just just miserable, but we we got it done. I redid uh, the paint in my bathroom and got rid of the moldy wallpaper, as well as doing all the leaves. So every inch of my body is Charlie Horse and cut up and sore. But my voice is back, thank God. So we could we could definitely chat together. Really looking forward to this. Um, you know, four days straight without ever looking at email, Twitter, our company Slack, you name it. It was it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And I'm just so glad I I chose to do that this year. You know, some years I kind of still work a little bit, keep on top of things. But Nonetheless, we're thrust into this sudden post-Thanksgiving bonanza where basically we're going to have the budget, debt ceiling, amnesty, taxes, healthcare all tied together. And the sad thing is this, we're going to go through as many, de- as many details as, as we can today to just explain what's ahead for conservatives, what are the potential pitfalls, what we should watch out for. But just in a general sense, it's so sad that basically as conservatives, we're, we're nothing but political orphans. Let's face it. While the left has a party that completely works for everything they believe in. So if you're a liberal in America, you know that you have a Democrat party that is working for you. That they will do everything they can. They'll use every legislative maneuver. They'll use every platform, every social media platform to broadcast and promote and advance their agenda. Whereas for conservatives, we don't have such a party. We know they're going to do everything they can to make an end run around conservatives, lie to them, and give the left everything they want. 
and you know when I say the left, it's, it's all kind of one because it's one big unibrow party. And I say that as someone with a unibrow, by the way. <laughs> but we have a unibrow party in Washington. Now, what do we have coming down the pike? So it, it's interesting that you know, first off, just to you know, I know we had a light week last last week. I only did one podcast. The last time we met, we had Brandon Darby, the Texas editor for or the editor for Texas Breitbart, talking about what's going on at our border. Horrible border border wars. We basically have parts of our country where we have no control over. Um, a border agent was murdered 30 miles into our soil, and we still, a week later, it's eerie. A week later, we still don't have the details. Isn't that interesting? No one seems to care. No one in Congress cares. Um, you know, I wrote an article basically detailing a list of, oh gosh, uh, you know, 10 or so different ideas that Congress really needs to deal with, an emergency uh, any normal Congress that cared about their people that felt this duty, this sense of honor from the social compact that they're elected to represent their constituents, protect our sovereignty, uh, you know, they would vote on this ending sanctuary cities, you know, cutting off funds in the in, in the budget bill, which, of course, they won't, uh, you know, ending welfare and education magnets for illegal aliens, fixing the asylum loophole, the drug smuggling loophole for central americans which by the way you know these kids aren't so much so, so many of them aren't kids they're 16 to 18 year old ms13 members and nothing nothing they're not doing that they're not fixing that statutory loophole which is not even statutory it's kind of the way the courts view it kicking the courts out i mean we had last week all our articles on the ninth circuit court of appeals making daca the law of the land and statute lawless courts declaring sanctuary nation and saying sanctuary cities are the law of the land where's the border wall where's beefing up ice agents detention centers legal assets at the border implementing visa tracking as required by the 1996 law and by the way whatever happened to the diversity visa lottery that that blew over so isn't it funny that things happen in the news cry out for conservative solutions and when i say conservative nothing that i said is really conservative this is american this is america's sovereignty but nothing no response from congress no sense of urgency where is the sense of urgency it's to pass amnesty and they're talking about tacking it onto this budget bill and then on wednesday they're voting on this sexual harassment bill now this is kind of interesting what are they voting on are they voting to expel members that not just have rumors, allegations lodged against, against them, but actually have been caught abusing women? Are they passing legislation to end this slush fund of millions of dollars that are privately, you know, without any public input or transparency, handed out in settlements to, to, to you know, hand over to these female victims, presumably? Pres Presumably, most of them are female. Um, and by the way, they're they're done with taxpayer funds. This is completely lawless. So is there some sort of rush to do that? To pass, Ron DeSantis now has a bill, a congressman from Florida, to get rid of these private settlements. No, that's not what they're doing. They, they're passing this bill to make, make it mandatory that members of Congress and their staff 
take courses in anti-discrimination and anti-sexual harassment uh, classes. <laughs> now, you and I both know, it, it's funny, it's like killing a nuclear, uh, an ant with a nuclear bomb. The, the problem here is you have creepy people in Washington grabbing women and doing all sorts of things. Some of them we've already caught, like Al Franken. And by the way, Al Franken is back to work today. Not a single, to this day, not a single Republican, conservative, much less Democrat, has called on him to resign. When it's not just a rumor or an allegation, there is evidence that he did what he did. We know he did it. And now there's more allegations surfacing. But nothing. So, you know, you know it's like you, you harbor the criminal, oh, but let's take some classes. And we're not going to get rid of these slush funds with taxpayer funds. No, nothing. By the way, much, less, much like they won't get rid of the legal congressional subsidy for Obamacare to this day. God, only, only Allah knows why Trump hasn't enforced that. It's his Office of Personnel Management that controls it, but whatever, for some reason, he won't use that leverage over them. But anyway, so you could have a guy like John Conyers, like Al Franken, in your midst, and that's fine as long as you take anti-LGBTQCFY um, courses. And that's the thing. You, you don't need a course to say, don't keep your hands off a woman or anyone. Don't, you know, it, it really doesn't take much. There's nothing to give a course on. When you catch the behavior, you punish it. And again, just to be careful, constitutionally, if someone kind of, you know, does inappropriate behavior, I don't know if there's a way to expel them from the House or Senate. But you can, A, expel them from your political caucus. In other words, they could be a member of Congress, but you could, you know, they're, they're not a Democrat or a Republican conference member. And number two, you know, you could at least politically make it your rule to call on them to resign. But number three, most importantly, stop the lawless slush fund to fund these settlements so we could have it out in the open. Or better yet, pass legislation to bring this stuff in the sunlight. To void out the NDAs, the non-disclosure agreements. So people know. Who's there? No, 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 no. That they won't do. But take these classes, and we know what these classes are going to turn out to be. We all know what they are. We all know what they're like. It, it basically becomes a forum for promoting homosexuality, um, castration, aka transgenderism, which is not transgender, it's castration. Um, all sorts of, you know, just PC nonsense on don't open a door for women. Who, who knows what they're going to do? Because again, that's what you need a class for. You don't need a class to teach you the basic common sense and morality that you just keep your hands the hell off women. You, you, I mean, you don't need a class for that. You need to punish that. And by the way, it's not... It's, so the, there's a new ac acronym out there. PJ Media has this. L-G-G-B-D-T-T-T-I-Q-Q-A-A-P-P. -P. Okay, you ready? Lesbian, gay, gender, queer, bisexual, demisexual, transgender, transsexual, Two-spirit, intersex, queer, questioning, asexual, um, allies? I'm trying to read this. Allies, pansexual, and polyamorous. <laughs> anyway, so I, at least we got it all out there. Let's just get the whole alphabet now. Um, but, you know, I, I have a feeling in about a year or two, people are going to be saying that full mouthful there. But anyway, that, that's the type of stuff you're going to learn in these courses. But anyway, notice how when something comes up in the news 
that you could harness the news cycle to pass legislation that's right, that's conservative, that's proper. Whether it's, you know, immigration, whether it's a shooting comes up and we give people the right to carry, which, by the way, I badly needed in my home state of Maryland and Baltimore because crime is just out of control. Carjackings rampant everywhere in the Baltimore suburbs. But no, we won't do that. So even when sexual harassment comes up as the top news story, you could pass legislation, you know, or at least a resolution calling to expel certain members. You could certainly pass legislation voiding out the NDAs and the slush funds. But no. Let's harbor them, but then take a class on PC. (laughs) If that's not a perfect illustration of what our Congress stands for, I don't know what is. But anyway, so that's the first thing on the agenda. I just wanted to get that out there. But immigration. So that's going to be, to me, the real big thing to watch out for. So we have a national emergency. In general, with rising crime after two two decades of really a precipitous drop in crime. But in particular, we have a criminal alien problem in this country. Hundreds of thousands, sanctuary cities. And again, this is avoidable. That's what's so important about immigration. Immigration is an elective policy. Uh, You know, to a certain extent, you have to deal with the inherent problems you have in your own culture. But you don't have to import the worst elements of another country as well, because you could just simply deport them. You don't have to have them. You don't even have to spend money housing them in your prisons. You know, unless you believe one particular individual is a national security threat or whatever, and you don't want them released. But, um... You know, I wrote an article on this a little, little uh, while back before Thanksgiving that places like Nassau County, Long Island, very wealthy suburbs, so not just the usual, you know, kind of low-end areas, are completely inundated. You know, they're talking about a body count in Long Island now from MS-13 gangs. And, you know, just like we said with regards to the border war, you know, during our conversation with Brandon Darby, that this shouldn't even be a political or ideological issue. That this should be universal. But yet they are so bought into the open borders amnesty agenda that you're not allowed to deal with the criminal alien emergency for all Americans, including illegal aliens, by the way. So it's funny in this article I wrote a couple of weeks ago, the, the, some of the victims the AP appeared to be talking about in their article I cite were illegal aliens. And the irony is they came here from Honduras and it's like Honduras here. <laughs> That's the irony. I mean, they're so into open borders now that we've turned America into a third world that it can't even be that beacon for illegal aliens that they so sanctimoniously you know, bleed their hearts about um, why we need all these illegal aliens to obtain refuge here. So they're up to a body count of of several dozen individuals killed just since 2016 in Long Island, New York. And this is a result of the vicious cycle of amnesty that they will be pushing within the next couple weeks. I mean, really, really three legislative weeks. I mean, that's all there is until the Christmas break. And, you know, furthermore, Montgomery County, Maryland, you know, one of the richest counties, by the way, because it's right outside of D.C., 
all the DC bureaucrats live there, a lot of them, the ones that don't live on the Virginia side. And they now say that there's a whole slew of MS-13 members um, decapitating people, stabbing a man a hundred times, removing the victim's heart, burying, burying it in Wheaton Regional Park. Um, I'm just going to read to you, try to pull up here a court document just to get a sense of what's going on in our own communities. The defendant was stopped by Montgomery County PD patrol officers when he was the passenger in a vehicle being driven by another MS-13 gang member who was wanted by, for, for first-degree murder through Anne Arundel County, Maryland. That's farther north. On this date, the defendant was interviewed by MCPD detectives and he denied involvement in the victim's murder. Um, yada, yada, yada. Um, the victim's identity has not yet been conclusively established. The victim has been stabbed over 100 times, decapitated, dismembered, and his heart has been excised from his chest and thrown into the grave. This is what we've imported to our own shores, and nobody wants to talk about it. And, and like I said, this is a, an emergency problem. A lot of them are from Central America. A lot of them are the recent arrivals as a result of DACA. Literally, DACA spawned this new wave from Central America that started in, in 2014. And it's really picking up now, now that they're seeing that Trump's kind of a paper tiger. After the initial drop in border crossings, they're now surging every month. We don't have the latest data from September and October. They're kind of late on that. But, you know, what we saw from May through through August was a clear rise in border crossings, particularly from Central America. A massive percentage of them. Recently, ICE actually just apprehended a number of them. A massive percentage, the White House blasted this out, sent to conservative media recently, so they're, right, they're, they're cognizant of it. They're, they're gang members. I mean, even if you're an open borders person, this shouldn't be political. We should not have to sit and debate amnesty for the hopes that maybe you'll throw us some bones on enforcement against criminal aliens. This should be an emergency. It should be the number one priority, and it should be universal. Why should that be held hostage for the amnesty agenda, especially when the amnesty agenda is the antecedent? It's the catalyst. It's the impetus for the violence that we face in this country. It's what spawned this wave of illegal immigration. And no, they're not all, you know, lovely, uh, you know, um, what, what does Jeb Bush call them? Act of love. But yet, this is a big deal. There's a huge push, either a standalone legislation, but really to tack on to the so-called must-pass, either debt ceiling or um, budget bills. Imagine that. No effort to defund Planned Parenthood. No effort to build the wall. No effort to defund sanctuary cities. No effort to defund Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, or the PLO, or many other things we'd love to do in a budget bill. But by golly, they're pushing for amnesty, and all the businesses are on board. I'm going to read to you here from a, from a McClatchy article. Um, supporters mount huge push. The business community will set up a war room on December 6th inside the Capitol where Republican and Democratic supporters can conduct satellite interviews with national and local press. The room will include video monitors of interactive maps with data from all 435 congressional districts and live feeds to coordinated rallies in dozens of major cities across the country, including Miami, Raleigh, Sacramento, Kansas City, and Boise, gosh, even Idaho, among others. 
Senate Republicans such as North Carolina's Tom Tillis, what a bastard that guy is, and South Carolina's Lindsey Graham, who have introduced bills to, to, to protect so-called dreamers, have recorded videos in support of the effort. So now you have two Republicans downright promoting lawlessness. Partnership for a New American Economy, which is full of cartel, you know, business interests, also plans to launch a series of national digital ads to draw attention to the effort to support dreamers. <laughs> Look at this, I laughed my head off. <laughs> Representative Joe Barton <laughs> speaking via webcast. I guess this is when he wasn't sending naked pictures of himself to, to women as, as a married man. Um, speaking via webcast, the Dallas Chamber of Crony Commerce and an event on Dreamer legislation said he would rather address the issue in December, but because of the tax bill, that's unlikely. And, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to tie in the tax bill with health care and immigration. So there's a right case to be made against the tax bill, and there's a wrong case to be made against it. And I, I want to just untangle this because I want to be fair here. Um, you know, I was an initial critic of the House bill, but the Senate bill is much better. But nonetheless, because we're orphans as conservatives and the Republicans will stab us in the back, my concern is more of a political one than a policy one with this with this bill. So let's talk about the tax bill and how this is going to tie into amnesty. For some of you, this is a repeat from a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to reiterate this and add some new material, given that we're literally staring down the barrel of, of these deadlines. So, you know, the basic problem with the House bill initially was that it was basically revenue neutral. They used all the $1.5 trillion in cuts for the corporate side, which is fine, it's good. But then, because they you know have deficit problems and they couldn't spend more money, or I shouldn't say spending money, a tax cut is not spending money, but I mean lose more revenue. So what happened was they, they had to make the individual tax cut not really a tax cut. It had to be revenue neutral. So it was roughly $3 trillion in tax cuts, $3 trillion in tax increases. Get rid of these deductions, lower the rates a little bit, but get rid of this. And basically what, what came out is you had random winners and losers where you literally had some people who, you know, particularly middle upper income families who would wind up paying more on net in many parts of the country. And then even though it was getting a tax cut, it was really, it was very minimal. So, you know, what, what the final Senate bill did and the final house bill is also a little better after it passed that a committee, basically it repeals individual mandate of Obamacare. So they got a couple hundred billion in extra revenue from there. And they played around with the scheduling of the, you know, just the timing with the budget window that they're able to make it better. So the rates come down pretty substantially and they double the child tax credit to 1,000 more per child. So from 1,000 to 2,000. So it's clearly worth the elimination of deductions, even, even for people that rely heavily on, on deductions. Um, you know, the, particularly the state and local uh, income and, and property taxes, it, it, it's well worth it. And, and that, look, in a vacuum, that is a good tax cut. You know, you get rid of the deductions, but you actually wind up having a net tax cut on many people. You know, I got three kids. Well, that's 3000 extra dollars right there, not even, you know, getting to the to the rates. Um, you lose a little bit on the deductions, but then, you know, overall, a lot of people could easily see three, four thousand dollars less in taxes. So that's that, that that's good. And and Rand Paul just, you know, as I'm talking to you now, Rand Paul just put out a op-ed in foxnews.com 
saying that, you know, he's he's supporting this. Very similar to what I've been saying. He was critical of it. But this, this is great because it is a tax cut. And then to boot, we are getting rid of the individual mandate. Now, before I get to the problems that we face, which is why, again, we are orphans in this, in this uh, political system, because we have a party that's going to screw us even when there's something good, they put it on a string and yank it away from us. But I want to get to an invalid argument and something very scandalous. CBO, the Joint Committee on Taxation, all these what I call deep, deep legislative state agencies. You know, you have the deep uh, state and the executive branch. You have these unelected bureaucrats in the legislature, which for whatever reason, the Republicans never reformed. They complain about CBO, but then they appoint, you know, Paul Ryan appointed the director. So you kind of look like a fool when you complain about it. But whether it's them, whether it's the outside organization like the Tax Policy Center, they're all putting out these analyses saying that a bunch of people are going to get a tax increase and right away and, you know, particularly people earning under 30000 And it is completely wrong. It is very misleading. And what they're doing is just egregious. I want to just address this before I address what is a valid concern with what Republicans are doing. So at first, when I saw it, I was scratching my head. I said, well, wait a minute. I understand maybe in 15, 20 years from now, because the rates, while they do come down, they're subjected to chain CPI. In other words, the tax brackets grow um, at a slower rate of inflation. So over time, a lot of people will be, the, the tax cut will be erased. But again, and, and, and I, if we're up to me, I wouldn't put chain CPI in there. But on net, it's a significant enough tax cut that I'd rather have, you know, massive three, $4,000 per person tax cut a year than, you know, and then worry about chain CPI in 15, 20 years from now. Um, you know, if given the choice, I'd rather not have chain CPI at all, but it is what it is. I'd rather they cut spending, but it is what it is. They're not doing that. So, you know, I can't criticize something that no longer raises taxes. In fact, it is a substantial tax cut. So saying, what what are they talking about? Because the CBO is saying the tax increases are going to be right away. And then also, it's not like they were saying it's on people earning a hundred to two hundred thousand. They're saying on families earning under thirty thousand. Now, I don't mean to sound, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, be off putting here. But I, I'm sick of hearing families earning under thirty thousand. I mean, if you have a husband and a wife and kids, there aren't too many earning under thirty thousand. But if you are, you're not in the realm of tax policy because you're already having a net negative tax liability. In other words, you're earning money off the earned income tax credit and the additional child tax credit. You're certainly not going to be paying taxes anyway. So what does it mean we're raising your taxes? And then I read deeper. And what they're doing is they're mixing in healthcare policy to tax policy. So you know CBO's general healthcare, their voodoo healthcare analysis is basically, well, if you get rid of parts of Obamacare, prices are going to go up. Now, <laughs> never mind the fact that CBO has gotten the past and the present wrong. Somehow they know the future. Gee, I wonder how premiums for families have grown from $450 a month to two, three thousand per month when we've done everything CBO has advised us that would bring down premiums, aka feeding the insurance cartel, and yet it's gone up. And now if you 
limit funding to the insurance cartel and limit their monopoly, oh no, then prices will go up. So they're basically saying that prices will go up and it's going to hurt um, people earning under 30000 by repealing the individual mandate, which I don't get what they're talking about because if you're earning that little, you're getting 100% subsidized irrespective of... So even if they're right that the prices go up and not down, which I, I think they would go down because you're removing their monopoly and we're going to start alternative competition, they would have to compete. But even if they'd go up to a million dollars, right now, statutorily, the government would have to kick in the full million dollars if you're under that subsidy line. So, I mean, that's pretty egregious what they're talking about here. But that's how they analyze healthcare. But nonetheless, they're taking their healthcare analysis a step further, and they're mixing it to their tax policy analysis. And what they're saying is that that's tantamount to a tax increase. So that's very that, that that's completely dishonest. If you want to rip on the healthcare policy, you have to disclose that up front. The headline of oh raises taxes, they don't pay any taxes, and the individual mandate has nothing, nothing to do with raising taxes on them, even under your voodoo analysis. Um. So anyway, that that is not a valid our argument. I know I cited the tax policy center and some others on the first iteration, because some of that was true. It wasn't the phony class warfare. Generally, people who pay a significant amount in taxes under some proposals were going to pay more. That is no longer true. So that's bogus. But here, here's the problem. Here's the problem for conservatives. Here's my fear. My fear is we're not going to get the better Senate version. So to begin with, it's going to be watered down. Okay, you get repeal of the individual mandate. This passes, and it's earth-shattering. You have an entire year of Republican governance. They do nothing. We get nothing for it. So this is a huge deal. Man, biggest biggest accomplishment of the Trump administration, of the Republican Congress. Dawn in America, morning in America. And then I know the way some of these conservatives work in Washington. Because expectations are so low, they're going to feel such a debt of gratitude to leadership for giving them such a beautiful tax cut and repeal of the individual mandate. But here's what's going to happen. A week later, this will get us into maybe the second week in de- December, even the first week in December. This is when all hell is going to break loose. You're going to have the omnibus. You're going to have the debt ceiling. And they're going to try to tack on amnesty. And they're going to tack on the insurance bailout. So now, the insurance bailout completely voids out the point of repealing the individual mandate. What's the point of repealing the individual mandate? If I've said this a number of times. If you're trying to fix the health insurance system, the current insurance system, which I don't think should be the ultimate goal, but if that is your goal, it's actually counterintuitive because if you repeal the mandate, you have less money going into it, but you're keeping the regulations and subsidies. So in the short run, they're right that prices would technically, in a static analysis, they'd go up. Now, the problem is it doesn't factor in the dynamic response to that from the market forces that once you don't give them a monopoly and they have no nowhere to go, they say, all right, that will be $3,000 a month for premiums. Well, guess what's going to happen? Once people are unshackled from the mandatory requirement to purchase insurance, they're going to go to DPC, they're going to go to health sharing ministries, um, and you're going to have alternative models pop up. And, and, and the insurance, so on the one hand, yeah, they have less money, so they're going to need to you know, make it up. But on the other hand, the money ain't there. <laughs> the money ain't there. 
We're not forced into their system. They no longer have us by the neck. They no longer have the monopoly. So there's nothing to sugarcoat their price inflation. They, they won't be able to sustain that. That's where the bailout comes in and completely obviates the entire ability of the market to put that check and balance on them through the repeal of the individual mandate. Because now you have the endless cash flow coming from the government and they continue the, can continue the racket of inflating the pricing, distorting the market, and getting away with it. And people are subsidized. Okay, the ones who aren't, they'll, they'll bail out of it, but they're going to continue that monopoly and, and hurt our ability to create alternatives. Especially in conjunction with the Medicaid and Medicare. I've, I've pointed this out. I've, I've written some articles on this. There's a lot of news that you know, 74% of all Medicaid contracts are, are not, it's not a public program in its pure sense, like food stamps and, and, you know, housing vouchers. It's run by the insurance cartel. So they get the money from taxpayers, not just through Obamacare, but through Medicare and Medicaid and other programs. So they have a monopoly. We don't want to entrench their monopoly. So we'll make it not worth it if they have the insurance bailout. But then my fear is they're going to deal with amnesty and they're going to give them an, a debt ceiling increase and they're going to pass a budget funding everything the left wants and not funding what we want or not defunding what we want. Let me ask you now, is that tax cut really worth it? See what, is, see what I'm saying? This is what's so sad when you have a party that doesn't represent conservatives the same way the Democrats represent liberals. We can't even enjoy the, the, the one lollipop they dangle in front of us because it's going to come at too painful of a cost, which is why I'm honestly not excited for it to even pass. I don't care if it falls apart because I just fear no good will come of it, even though just in a vacuum, it's no longer honest for me to, you know, say that it's a bad tax bill or raise the taxes, you know, because what CBO is saying is absolutely not true. The new version, if that is what ultimately passes, it would be good. But I just don't feel it's worth it. But anyway, we're, we're almost out of time. This is, this is going to be your one-stop shop, CRCRTV. Um, we're going to have some exciting news, by the way, to announce in the coming, coming days. We're going to be expanding. Um, you know, Look, whether it's immigration, whether it's the budget, the tax bill, health care, and really the courts, what the courts are doing is unconscionable. And by the way, I don't have time to get into this, but just today, news came out proving my thesis on the judiciary once again. The Supreme Court refused to grant cert to the appeal for my home state of Maryland, where the district court and the Fourth Circuit basically voided out Heller, basically said that there's no right to carry. There's no we could ban all sorts of common um, rifles on the market so-called assault weapons, magazine capacity bans. And the Supreme Court refused to take it up. The Fourth Circuit literally used the Breyer's dissent, not the majority opinion, Breyer's dissent in Heller. And this is my point, that the lower courts are out of control. And if we don't strip their jurisdiction on these issues, guess what? The Supreme Court's meaningless because the Supreme Court will not grant us the appeal. And they allow, th th this is what they do. They're too embarrassed to violate the Constitution on a number of issues. Some issues they do. 
but they allow the lower courts to be their forward advancing guard. And then they'll just passively not take up the case. And the lower courts stand. And part of the problem is we can't even get a circuit split to force them to take it up because every circuit is bad. And usually the left won't bring their cases to the few good circuits. In this case, it's actually our people going on offense, bringing the lawsuits against the states. But again, obviously, they're not going to bring it in the fifth and eighth circuits, which are the better circuits, because those pretty much are the states that have good gun laws. And all the states with the problematic gun laws are in circuits that are horrible. So again, this is reason number 10,000 why the courts are irremediably broken. The Supreme Court is a one-way street, dead end for conservatives. We can never benefit from judicial review. You know, when states do something unconstitutional, they're never there for us, but they're always there to attack the states and void out everything they're doing when what they do is constitutional. So we have nobody standing for us on the courts. We have no effort in Congress to deal with this judicial emergency on immigration where the courts are taking over immigration. It's funny. There's no right to self-defense, which is unalienable and enshrined in the Bill of Rights, but there is a right to come here illegally, or there is a right to come here from Somalia. Sanctuary cities could thwart federal law. States and localities could thwart the Bill of Rights. Oh, but you can't draw your own maps, and you can't enforce federal immigration law. Welcome to our judicial Sodom Gomorrah. Anyway, that's where we are. We are orphans in our own land. We are orphans, politically speaking, in this system. It's going to be a rough couple weeks, but uh, we'll, we'll get through this together, folks. Thank you all for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.